This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial conflict. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are a church at best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. And to listen to all parts of today's interview, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You'll receive your login immediately and we'll have access to all of our material commercial-free. And to get in touch with us, for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. Anthony Peake is a writer who deals with borderline areas of human consciousness. He's a graduate of the University of Warwick and the London School of Economics. His first book, Is There Life After Death?, was published in 2006, and since then he has gone on to develop his own ideas, together with exploring the latest areas of research in his field. His fourth book, Making Sense of Near-Death Experiences, is a a collaborative effort with some of the world's leading authorities on the near-death phenomenon. His seventh book, A Life of Philip K. Dick, The Man Who Remembered the Future, will be the focus of tonight's interview. And to learn more about Anthony Peake and his work, visit his website at anthonypeake.com, which is also linked at ours. And directly from Crawley, West Sussex, England, I'm privileged to welcome my new special guest, Anthony Peake. Hello, Anthony, and welcome to Veritas. 
Hi, Mel, and thanks you very much for introducing me and a uh, wonderful introduction, and it's great to be on your show. Really looking forward to the next two hours. We're going to get into some very interesting areas, I think. Indeed, and I'm, I'm so privileged. Uh, I, I have to say, sometimes I have guests like you that I have not been exposed to, and I feel somewhat embarrassed, and I always say the same thing. Why have I not been exposed to your work? Because for the past 10 minutes, you and I have been talking, and it feels like uh, you're a, a lost uh, lost brother or friend that I haven't met, but it seems that I know you for some reason. Well, there is the old statement, isn't there, that uh, the world is just full of friends we haven't met yet. And clearly from our just our chatting in the last 10 minutes, it's amazing. The the areas of overlap in terms of our musical tastes and everything else is indeed, indeed amazing. So maybe we can touch upon that later. But yes, no, I feel the same way. Good. Well, we can talk about all your work, but tonight we're going to be focusing on a very special man, that's Philip K. Dick. And right from the beginning, so that people understand, we're going to be using the, the, the letters PKD to refer to Philip K. Dick. First of all, for the audience, the very test audience, I know you've been in many other shows and they know you, but for our audience, there may be some people who may not be exposed to your work. Give us some of your background and what made you question the nature of consciousness. Uh, there's a lot of people that haven't heard of me. I mean, there's an awful lot of people in the world out there, so it's not surprising. And there will be uh, your your listeners who will be introduced to my work for the first time. And I hope they find it intriguing and interesting. Um, my background very much is um, very standard uh, person brought up in the UK in the late 1950s, early 1960s, went to university in 1973 um, and studied sociology, studied history and then did postgrad at London School of Economics uh, in, in business. But effectively, I've always been fascinated by the relationship between whatever is in my head with the external world. And ever since I was a very, very young child, I used to be intrigued by the fact of, of dreaming and the way in which I can live within this three-dimensional reality, perceive the three-dimensional reality around me. And yet when I go to sleep at night, I exist in another reality, which to me is just as real and indeed must be just as real because Unlike people who lucid dream, um, I'm not somebody who, when I'm dreaming, can suddenly realize the fact that I'm dreaming and become aware of, of dreaming and therefore become conscious within a dream. So to me, the whole question of what it is to be a conscious something, you know, in other words, there's a conscious something that is existing a few centimeters behind your eyes that's looking out to a universe that is completely alien to it. In other words, one of the things that fascinated me for many years is the interface we have with external reality. In other words, everything I perceive is actually transmitted to my brain by sensations, by sens sensual sensations, such as the sense of touch and the sense of hearing and sight and everything else. But I never actually fully interface with the external reality I perceive. And I, even as a child, I was intrigued to know whether that reality I perceived was the reality that other people perceived. And funnily enough, just making a comment here about Philip K. Dick, because one of the things that PKD wrote about um, many times was when he was very young, he had similar interests in the sense that he once quoted the fact that when he was working for a record store uh, uh, in um, his hometown, he he turned round to the fellow engineers and he said, how do you know when we come across a, a red traffic light as to whether we are all perceiving the same red? 
Because, of course, as I used to think as a child and as a teenager, effectively what I perceive as red isn't necessarily what you perceive as red. And indeed, there is no visual or verbal way I can describe what red looks like to you to make you understand that the red I see is the red that you see. Because all I can say is that red is a little bit like a dark version of orange. But that's defining it by relative terms. So when I, as I developed, um, I, I was interested in people and groups. And that's why when I was at university, I decided to actually study sociology, which of course is the study of people en masse, you know, how human beings work collectively. But I never moved away from the idea that human beings, um, uh, sort of society is effectively a collection of individual human beings. And each human being is an island. And each human being perceives the world in a different way. So when I began to study in greater depth philosophy and the philosophy of some of the idealists, people like Berkeley, people like um, uh, Fechte and various other German writers particularly, it became clear to me that the whole idea of what consciousness is in the greater world was something that had intrigued philosophers for millennia. In fact, you can go back to the writings of Plato, you know, where Plato had his famous analogy of the cave, the idea that, you know, we could all be spending our time as prisoners in a cave looking at shadows on the wall and assuming the shadows on the wall that we're seeing are actually reality, when in point of fact, the reality is beyond the fire, beyond the shadows and beyond beyond the entrance of the cave. And indeed, touching back on Philip K. Dick, again, Philip K. Dick was fascinated by this idea, the idea of what exactly is reality and how do we know what reality is. Now, I was in the fortunate position of um, around about 12 years ago, having a little bit of a cushion financially in that, uh, that I'd done a couple of business contracts because my background, I mean, I, I work as a management and a business consultant, um, but I I'd, um, had sufficient cash. To, to follow my dream. And my dream was to write a book. And it was quite strange because I just had this driving urge to write a book, but I didn't know what I was going to write about. You know, it was really quite strange. There was just this give time up. And my wife said, okay, you can take a year out. So just settle down and just write a book. And I, what happened was the very first day that I was writing the book, I was literally sitting in front of a blank computer screen. I had the white paper of a a Word document in front of me, not knowing where I was going to go. And I recall this quite, quite distinctly because I can remember it quite precisely. And I was, at that time, we were living in a place called Horsham in West Sussex, which is around about 15 miles away from where we now live. And I was looking out the window thinking, what am I going to write about? And The most strange sensation took place in that I started feeling a tingling in the the edge at the bottom of my fingers, the end of my fingers, and I started to feel a tingling in my lips. Now, I have for all my life suffered or experienced, for want of a better term, classic migraine. And I knew perfectly well that what was happening here was it was the, the aura effect of a classic migraine attack. Now, an aura, an aura feeling is a sensation you have before you have a migraine. And in classic migraine, you know that in 10 or 15 minutes, your head's going to explode and you're going to have incredible pain. It's the kind of early warning system. But what was strange about this particular early warning system was that I started to feel very, very peculiar. And 
I suddenly had the overwhelming sensation that I had sat in front of that computer, looking at that computer screen sometime in my past. And it was the most powerful deja vu sensation. You can imagine, I'd done that before. I had been there before. The aura then developed, and strangely enough, the, the, the actual headache then never developed. But I had my theme. I decided I wanted to write a book explaining exactly what deja vu was. And effectively, a year later, I had a book, which uh, at that time was called Cheating the Ferryman, which was about my search for the understanding of the most common, strange sensation 70% of people out there will experience at some stage in their life, that feeling that they have been somewhere before. And in fact, the book is The Life After Death, The Extraordinary Science of What Happens When We Die, which was the final book that was published in 2006, very much explains or attempts to explain exactly what that sensation is and why it is we recognize the fact when we go to places that we recognize we've been there before. And from then, the other books then spun off because all the books have been additions to and elaborations on that initial concept, which I call cheating the ferryman. Uh, and indeed, even the Philip K. Dick book is an elaboration on this, because in my second book, The Daemon, A Guide to Your Extraordinary Secret Self, I have a whole section, the last chapter, it deals with Philip K. Dick. And all I wanted to do was then actually expand upon Philip K. Dick, because I believe that Philip K. Dick experienced every single thing that I write about in my first book and my subsequent books. He was a living example and proof of the power of the hypothesis that I call cheating the ferryman. And of course, we're going to be discussing PKD very soon, but, uh, you know, thinking of that cheating the ferryman reminds me of Don't Pay the Ferryman by Chris de Berg. But also oh. speaking of uh, Plato and the story of the cave, the problem is that those of us who want to explore what's outside the cave are always looked upon as dysfunctional. I'm seeing some similarities here. I went to graduate school for business, and, and we're dealing with this, dare we say, alternative reality in a way, because we're trying to explore what school didn't teach us. Do you find that sometimes you're living in two different worlds or dimensions? Completely and utterly. I think you're the first interviewer that's really hit that nail on the head, and I think possibly because of the similarity of our business backgrounds. But effectively, what you find is that the vast majority of people do not, they question. People do question, and they question many, many things, but they don't question the questions behind the questions. Uh, in other words, you know, you, you, you know I, I, I've developed a fairly effective working knowledge of, of quantum physics uh, because I've had to over the years of my writing. And people ask certain questions about the nature of reality, and physics asks questions about the nature of reality. But when you start asking questions, the really big questions of, for instance, why is there something other than nothing? Why is it that um, the most effective organism in terms of reacting to its environment was an amoeba? Why is it that we have evolved from amoebas? Because amoebas were profoundly effective. The question of why consciousness and self-referential consciousness has evolved when effective or altruism. When effectively, if we take the classic idea of, of nature uh, roar in tooth and claw, the idea that altruistic behavior and caring behavior and supporting behavior of your fellow human beings is not necessarily conducive to the survival of the fittest. 
one can argue that one could say that it's because um well i don't know that you're 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 making the the, the your whole race survive but surely the imperatives is to ensure that your own dna survives so these are the questions that i've always asked and whenever you get talking to i would call the general public about these things you can see their eyes glazing over because these are not the things they want to think about because what they're doing is they're facing the really deep questions those questions just as you go to bed at night when you're sleeping when you're about to go to sleep and you start to think about exactly what am i and you look into yourself to find the i inside and you discover there isn't anything all we are we are a, a reaction to external stimuli and we react in certain ways we never ever look inside to find out who the person is that's doing the perceiving of the reality around us nor indeed do people think of what i was touching upon earlier on the idea of how we perceive reality there is a term that um um uh, students of consciousness studies called naive realism and naive realism is what most people believe and naive realism is that the world that is presented to you by your senses is an absolute total facsimile and copy of what is really out there now all people who understand the process of perception even materialist reductionists that actually break the word, the brain down into its processes and its biochemical processes and its bioneurological and its neurochemical processes agree that whatever we are being presented to within our mind of what is external reality is not what it's like the question is what is it really like and indeed the even bigger question is is there a little version of me in my head that's in other words there's this whole idea isn't there of um the idea of the little man in the head in other words you are a little man or a little woman sitting in your head in a little room with two big computer big speakers and a big tv camera in front a tv image in front of you and you perceive the world that way it's called the the uh, the the idea of the homunculus the little man inside the head but of course that's an infinite regress because effectively it suggests if that's the case it means the homunculus itself must have a little man sitting it's in in its head so we start to get the mystery then of trying to really appreciate what is real and what is not real and most people never think about it fortunately there are more and more people asking these questions now and i don't know whether it's because there's a there's a seed change going on but humanity seems to be splitting into two groups that the groups that really just want their reality television they want the the stimuli that just keeps them from birth to death in a state of semi hypnotism because that's what they want they want more more money they want more possessions and there are individuals like ourselves who are actually in the really big asking the really big questions and saying you know what's the point of the universe the universe is vast you know 13 billion light years across 14 billion light years across why what is the point of it is there a point or is it literally we are just links in a genetic chain we're just um tools for our dna to continue these are really huge questions funny enough i used to do a radio program on the bbc over here in the uk bbc radio merseyside and the guy who used to do the show with me 
once turned around to me live on radio and said, I don't understand you. I don't know how you sleep at night. (laughs) (laughs) And I sleep at night very well because to me, these are, it's an abdication of your own intelligence and it's an abdication of being human to just not ask these questions. This is what you're here to do. You're here to ask the question. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section, or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today, with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it, because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.